Hi, friends. If you've been listening to us for a while now, then you might remember that today's episode, episode 10, is the Truer Crime season one finale. I want to take a minute before we jump into things to really thank you all for supporting the show through this first season and helping me and the team in growing this project. It's been so incredible to, you know, interact with you all, have conversations about these really important topics. It genuinely would not be possible. A season two would not be possible without your support. So we're going to be taking a break over the next couple months to create more episodes, but I promise you we will be back. And if you want to make sure that you are the first to know exactly when that's going to be, you can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and TikTok, all at Truer Crime Pod. In the meantime, um, while you're waiting for season two, you can also subscribe to our Patreon and For just $5 a month, you'll be able to catch bonus content. And genuinely, it's going to help us come back a lot faster. So if you want to sign up for that, you want to support us over on Patreon, you can go to patreon.com forward slash truer crime pod. But you know what? I get it. If you don't have the means to join us on Patreon right now, you can also support the show in other ways. You can leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. You can tell your friends and family about us. Genuinely, these things, all of them, they really, 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 really do make a huge difference. So we appreciate you. Thank you so much. And we're going to kind of jump into things. And I'm really excited because today's episode actually contains quite a lot of outside audio that we were able to get special access to for the purposes of today's episode. So we wanted to just extend a huge thank you to the folks at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill's Wilson Library um, for letting us access the audio from their Southern Historical Collection. As always, you can find the full citations for these audio clips. You can listen to them. All of that and all of our other sources are going to be on the show notes page for this episode, which you can find by going to True Crime Podcast. And our content warning for today, please be aware, today's episode contains references to sexual assault. Today's episode is a part two, the continuation of a story I started telling you two weeks ago, a story about a woman named Joanne Little. So if you're just jumping in, you're going to want to go back and you're going to want to listen to episode eight, Joanne Little, part one, that first. But if you've already listened to that episode, you're in the right place right now because this is the story of Joanne Little, part two. I'm Celicia Stanton, and you're listening to Truer Crime. left off the first part of this story with Joanne Little facing the death penalty. Joanne, who had been the lone woman prisoner at the Beaufort County Jail in North Carolina, had stabbed one of her jailers, Clarence Allgood, after he'd sexually assaulted her in her prison cell. Joanne was terrified that no one would believe she had acted in self-defense, that no one would even care if they did believe her. Joanne made the decision to escape hiding out for days as authorities let a manhunt to find her and threatened to shoot her on sight. But then Joanne found a lawyer willing to help her, and she'd turn herself in to police. It would all set off this flurry of media attention, and 
everyone seemed to have an opinion on whether Joanne, a black woman prisoner, was justified in defending herself against the white jailer who'd sexually assaulted her. Joanne's case was really interesting. It sat at this perfect intersection of concerns about women's rights, prisoners' rights, civil rights, and these movements rallied behind her immediately. But at the same time, there were many white folks who were deeply committed to anti-Black racism who believed that Joanne couldn't be raped because they didn't think Black women could be victims of rape at all. Others still believed that Joanne was lying, that it had all been a ploy she used to escape jail. But one thing was for certain. All eyes were on Joanne as she faced what the Chicago Tribune would call the trial of the decade. And while Joanne herself had become a public figure, that alone wasn't going to get her very far in the courtroom. She needed a lawyer she could trust. And a 32-year-old white attorney named Jerry Paul, who had a reputation for representing Black defendants, seemed to be the perfect fit. The Charlotte Observer would report that Jerry had even worked with Joanne before, seven years earlier when he helped her get out of the juvenile training school she'd been sent to after she'd tried to drop out of high school. Jerry was the kind of impassioned lawyer who knew the system was deeply broken. He had this keen understanding of how the criminal legal system really worked. He was a quick thinker with an eye for strategy, but he wasn't working alone. According to The Observer, on the same day that Joanne would turn herself in to the State Bureau of Investigation, a 25-year-old Black attorney named Karen Galloway got word that she'd passed her state bar exam. The timing was almost eerily perfect. Joining the defense team, Karen would eventually form a deeply close bond with Joanne, even telling writer David Soselski of the News and Observer that, at times, the two felt like sisters. But... Karen and Joanne, they were very different people. Karen would say to the News and Observer that, quote, Joanne was very young and cute, a tiny, tiny little girl. She was from a poor family, but she was a survivor. She knew the streets. She was not a pretty person to deal with. I'm not talking about looks. I mean, she was cunning and she could be kind of brash. If they stood a chance at winning this case, the defense team thought it would be important for Joanne to seem less like Joanne and more like Karen. Karen, who was well-dressed, highly educated and polite, but extremely well-spoken, was the kind of Black woman they thought white folks could empathize with. It wasn't fair, but it was strategic. And if their goal was to win, every move, every choice was deeply important. To me, it was all a reminder that Joanne's story had become bigger than her. She was now a symbol for all those who'd come before her and the many who would come after. And it meant that who she was, that no longer seemed to matter as much as who the movement wanted or needed her to be. As Jemiah Wilson writes for Ms. Magazine, Joanne Little herself would say, my life is not in the hands of the court. My life is in the hands of the people. And really, it's something that happens all the time. One story can break through and catch the attention of the media, of the people. And before we know it, the story is no longer about this individual person because the story has become synonymous with the movement it's now supposed to represent. Think about folks like Matthew Shepard and Emmett Till, like Ruby Bridges and Malala Yousafzai, like Breonna Taylor and George Floyd. 
and these folks and their families, they never asked for this. It just happens. And really, it makes sense. Stories catalyze people. They trigger our empathy. They give us a common cause to unite over. They're an important tool, but it raises the question of what we lose in that process. It makes me think about an article I read recently by writer Amani Perry for The Cut about Samaria Rice. Samaria's son, Tamir Rice, was murdered by police in 2014 for playing with a toy gun. Tamir had been just 12 years old. And his story, much like Joanne Little's, would captivate the nation. But as Amani Perry would write, Samaria Rice is the mother of Tamir, not a mother of the movement. Perry goes on to describe the frustration that Samaria felt as her son's story became global without her input, as organizers advised her to restrain her anger, as leaders in the Black Lives Matter movement seemed to use Tamir for personal gain without directly supporting the folks who loved Tamir most, his family. And of course, while Samaria's experience may not be true for everyone like her, it certainly warrants attention and reflection. It makes me curious about the ways we can uplift stories and organize for change while also centering the folks harmed. And don't get me wrong, the movement that grew around Joanne, that fundraised for her defense, that spread the word about her case, it was all so, so important. But that level of support was only possible if Joanne was willing to step into her new role of symbol. Here's Joanne's lawyer, Jerry Paul, in an interview with journalist James Reston, speaking about this strategy. I early on decided I had to totally create her. Um, Because it was my opinion that she could not carry the character unless you gave it to her. You could build around with an incident. But as far as the personality, you had to create that. And you you had to only allow people to see so much of her. As civil rights worker Cynthia Odoms would tell the Charlotte Observer, Joanne's case was, quote, a timely accident. If it hadn't been her, it would have been someone else. So, Joanne it was. And leading up to the trial, organizers raised hundreds of thousands of dollars on Joanne's behalf through mailers, marches, and strategic media campaigns. Joanne's lawyer, Jerry Paul, would tell Wayne King for the New York Times that you must orchestrate the press. This country works that way. You have to deal with reality. And that fact is this country's weakness. And so Jerry Paul did just that. They'd have Joanne photographed carrying a copy of To Kill a Mockingbird. They'd leak stories to the press that Joanne would represent herself in court or that the defense had secret witnesses at the ready. All of it was manufactured and all of it would catch the attention of the media and as a result, raise more funds for Joanne's case. But for all of the support, there was still plenty of opposition. James Reston would write that when a civil rights march in support of Joanne Little was held in Washington, the mayor remarked that, quote, they're pushing their own cause. I can't blame them. This is an opportunity for them. I don't like it, but they'd be foolish not to take advantage of it. The them in question seemed to be Black folks. But the mayor's comments were representative of a larger problem for Joanne and her defense team because the reality was 
Joanne could have all the support in the world, but at the end of the day, if the 12 jurors sitting in the back of the courtroom didn't like her or the cause she represented, that alone would be enough to guarantee a guilty verdict. And given the fact that the trial was set to be held in Beaufort County, things didn't look too great for Joanne. As North Carolina Senator William Smith would tell James Reston, if the jury chosen is representative of most Beaufort County juries, it will be a primarily white panel of good folks, basically ignorant, fearful, extremely subject to community pressure, aware of what the neighbors will say, and afraid of being called an N-word lover. All of this, not even 50 years ago. But it seemed to be a careful balance for white folks in Beaufort who simultaneously wanted to uphold their racism alongside desiring not to be perceived as racist. This had all unfolded in the years after the civil rights movement in the 1960s. And as Joanne's lawyer, Jerry Paul, would tell James Rustin, I know these people. I know what they are. They're racist in eastern North Carolina, and they know they're racist. But in 1975, it may not be a good thing to admit you're a racist. It was the kind of mental gymnastics that folks like William Griffin knew well. The district attorney and lead prosecutor in the case against Joanne, William Griffin, was the type of person who often seemed to jump between overt and covert racism. In one conversation with James Reston, he denied the existence of racism in Beaufort County at all, proclaiming that the South just wasn't racist and that he had many Black neighbors. He'd conclude by sharing what he really thought of folks who felt the community was racist. People who uh, perceive racism, in my opinion, are the real racists. And William Griffin was full of strong opinions. According to the New York Times, he'd say, quote, I believe capital punishment should be retained, not as a deterrent, but as a punishment. Punishment is a basic principle of our system from which we have strayed, The Bible not only requires punishment for crimes, it demands it. On another occasion, Griffin discussed Joanne's case with James Reston, sharing what he believed the community opinion on Joanne was. Here he is on that now. I'll tell you if you want to, if it's off the record. One black woman here commented when asked why she didn't want to donate some time and went into this effort, she said, Joanne Little, she ain't nothing but a whore. The fact of the matter was, William Griffin was no anomaly. And Joanne's defense team feared that a jury from Beaufort County might all but guarantee a guilty verdict. So they decided to do something that hadn't ever been done before. They'd use science to convince the judge the trial's venue had to be changed. To do it, they worked with a social scientist named Courtney Mullen to do a survey of different potential trial venues, including Beaufort County, where the trial was currently set to be held, and Orange County, where the defense would have preferred the trial to be held. Their hope was to prove to the judge that a fair trial just wasn't possible in Beaufort County. Courtney Mullen would say in an interview with James Reston that this project was a massive undertaking that would normally have taken upwards of a year. But they didn't have that kind of time. And so working 12 hours a day, they'd completed the work in a matter of months. It was a hugely expensive operation that wouldn't have been possible without the hundreds of thousands raised by Joanne's supporters. And when the surveys were complete, well, the findings were really upsetting. According to the published results by Mullen and her team, despite the fact that Black folks made up 30% of the eligible jury pool in Beaufort County, they'd make up only 13.5% of jurors actually selected. 
they'd also find that women were being disproportionately excused from juries. It was a fact that Mullen would speak about directly in an interview with James Reston, telling him that the prosecutor, William Griffin, had responded to these findings with yet another one of his unfounded justifications. Well, we proved that they were underrepresented, given their numbers in the population. They are not underrepresented as far as the summons go. They are summoned in equal numbers to their proportion of the population. They are excused by the judge too much. They're excused by the judge for reasons of uh, children, having children. And uh, Griffin said, well, you can't have a, a court and have high chairs all over the court. Well, that's absurd. I mean, it's really an absurd argument. It is that he thinks that women cannot do that job. And, and there is a... Yes, he did. He did. And I, I think that, you know, that that's the kind of uh, problem that exists that has to be confronted. But honestly, the lack of racial and gender diversity wasn't the worst that the study would uncover. Not by a long shot. It'd be questions that they'd ask survey respondents that proved to be the most revealing. They asked straight out whether respondents believed Joanne Little killed Clarence Allgood in self-defense. And nearly 40% of those surveyed in Beaufort County would say no. And when asked whether they believed that Black women had lower morals than white women, or whether Black people were more violent than white people, over 60% of folks in Beaufort would say yes to not one, but both of these questions. The findings would go on and on like that over and over again, highlighting that racism and sexism would prevent any possibility of a fair trial for Joanne. It was the data that the defense team had suspected all along, but now they had definitive proof that they could present in a final report to the judge. They'd even go the extra mile of hiring an expert witness to testify to their argument. According to Danielle McGuire in her book At the Dark End of the Street, on April 22nd, 1975, the judge would grant the request to change the venue. And while the trial wouldn't be moved to Orange County, it would be moved to North Carolina's capital, Raleigh. And while the decision was a victory for the defense, the judge's written decision wouldn't even once mention racism. Instead, he'd choose to speak only about how the media attention in Beaufort would make a fair trial unlikely. It was a pretty strange justification considering the fact that the trial was national news and over 75% of survey respondents in counties across North Carolina reported that they already knew a lot about the case. But regardless of the justification, the trial was moving and Joanne's fate was now in the hands of the residents of Raleigh, North Carolina. And so now it was time to move on to the next stage of defense strategy. According to the report completed by Mullen and her team, the defense paid $35,000 to develop a mathematical model for assessing jurors. The model, which would be the first of its kind, was designed to help the defense determine which jurors would be the most advantageous picks. It also used body language analysis to determine if a juror was defense or prosecution-oriented, and they even go as far as hiring a psychic to come and give information to them about each potential juror based on their aura. It was an approach to jury selection that no one had ever seen before. And as I'm sure you can tell, it held back pretty much nothing. All in all, the process of selecting the jurors would take 
10 days as hundreds of jurors were considered. Danielle McGuire would write that when all was said and done, a jury made up of 12 people was selected to serve. Six were white, six were black, nine were women, and seven were under the age of 40. It was a jury that was far more representative of Joanne's community than would typically be expected. Maybe, just maybe, Joanne's defense actually had a chance. But going to trial definitely came with its risks, and Joanne understood what she was up against. Here's Joanne in an interview with James Reston. I used to uh, believe that people could actually go to court and get, you know, justice and whatnot. I, I didn't think that uh, when you go to court, people look at the color of your skin and say that I think that you should have uh, 20 or 30 years. But uh, since I've gotten into this, I've been um, listening to news and reading papers and whatnot, and I actually see uh, what they do in the court, you know. And, and it's really uh, a thing where it's, it's sort of like favoritism. Mm-hmm. You know, they would, uh, I'm not saying they would let a person, uh, a white, off, you know, completely, but they would be less, you know, um, lenient towards a black than they would a white when they would be, uh, they would give them more privileges, you know. Mm-hmm. They might give one, where's one going there for a break, and they might give him um, 30 years, you know, if he's black, and then a white come up with the same charge and they give them 10 years. You know, I've seen it happen. And, and it just goes to prove that, um, that you know, that it's, 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 it changes, you know, for different sets of people. Mm-hmm. And, it's not, and the laws are not made up for blacks. But now, Joanne would be forced to face this system head on. Because on July 15th, 1975, in Raleigh, North Carolina, the trial of Joanne Little would begin. According to Danielle McGuire and Jordan Green of IndieWire, outside the Wake County Courthouse were hundreds of supporters holding signs like, Defend Black Womanhood, Free Joanne Little, Joanne is our sister, and self-defense is not a crime. Joanne herself would show up in a pink and blue dress her defense team hoped made her seem respectable and godly. The prosecution would present first, and they'd focus their case on slandering Joanne's character, trying to convince the jury that Joanne was sexually loose and had poor morals, providing virtually no evidence to support their argument that Joanne had lured Clarence Oliga to her cell in order to murder him and escape the jail. It had seemed almost as if the prosecution had spent literally no real time building a case of any sort against Joanne made me wonder how easily they'd been able to win convictions in the past. Incredibly, according to Danielle McGuire, by the time the prosecution was wrapping up, the judge, feeling that the state had failed to provide clear evidence that Joanne had planned to kill Clarence Allgood, would make the decision to reduce Joanne's charges from first-degree murder to second-degree murder. The death penalty was officially off the table. It was a moment I can only imagine felt absolutely incredible. But Joanne still was far from acquitted. And now it was time for the defense to make their own case. The defense would make a variety of arguments, from detailing the long history of jailers like Oligood abusing incarcerated women to 
demonstrating that all the good stab wounds were consistent with defensive wounds. But some of the most compelling evidence would be testimony from several women who'd been held previously at Beaufort County Jail. According to Danielle McGuire, one woman, Rosa Ida May Robertson, said that Oligood had threatened to assault her on many occasions, saying things like she'd been, quote, confined so long she needed sex. Another young woman named Phyllis Ann Moore testified that during her time in jail, Oligood made inappropriate comments repeatedly, asking her things like, did she miss her man? And another still was Anne-Marie Gardnera, who testified that Oligood would come to talk to her each night, and at times, he'd come up behind her, touching her inappropriately, always without her consent. All these women who bravely came forward and shared their stories, they demonstrated that Clarence Oligood had a clear pattern of behavior. Joanne's story wasn't some one-off. She was one of many. And then... The defense made a decision that was risky, but they hoped would ultimately fully sway the jury. They decided to put Joanne herself on the stand. But, of course, this decision, it wasn't made on a whim. Like everything the defense had done to this point, it was carefully considered and heavily strategized. They'd prepared for weeks to put Joanne on the stand... And Wayne King would write for the New York Times that Jerry Paul ran her through her testimony over and over again until she'd almost become bored with it, until she could answer any question without getting heated. And now, it was time to see if all their work would pay off. According to Danielle McGuire, Joanne would speak very quietly on the stand. She shared the emotional story of how Oligood had attacked her, expressing how she'd feared for her life explaining through tears the details of what he'd done to her. Several of the Black women jurors seemed to really connect to her story, to feel Joanne's pain as they cried alongside her. When it was time for cross-examination, Joanne seemed ready. She'd sit through hours and hours and hours of questioning, never, ever getting angry, even when the prosecutor's questions were harsh and cutting and offensive. I could only imagine how painful it must have been to be questioned in this way, to be doubted and berated and forced to relive such a painful experience over and over again. From the strategic perspective, Joanne's defense team hoped that it would make the jury trust her and that it would portray the prosecution poorly. When it was time for closing arguments, it was Karen Galloway's time to shine. Karen, the young Black attorney who developed a close bond with Joanne, hoped to do everything she could to hit at the jurors' empathy. And so according to David Selsuski of the News and Observer, Karen taped off a five-by-seven-foot box on the ground and delivered her closing arguments while standing inside it. The box, she'd explained, was the same size as the cell Joanne had been in on the day she was attacked by Clarence Oligood. She explained to the News and Observer that, quote, I asked the jurors to imagine themselves as Joanne and to feel what she was feeling. I'd say, you're 19. You're alone. In comes Mr. Oligood. You've always trusted him. You liked him. And then I led the jurors through the rape scene. Karen was a brand new lawyer giving her very first closing arguments. When she noticed some of the jurors crying, she worried she'd done something wrong and hoped 
that maybe she'd gotten through to them. And now, all there was left to do was wait. Nearly a year of buildup, and now it was all in the hands of just 12 individuals. According to CBS, the jury deliberated for only an hour and 18 minutes before returning with their decision. They'd wait with anticipation heavy in the air as the jury foreman, Mark Nielsen, stood and announced their verdict. We, the jury, find the defendant, Joanne Little, not guilty. In what I imagine was a moment of extreme relief, CBS would say that Joanne tilted her head back with closed eyes, tears running down her cheeks. Several jurors would later share with CBS why they'd come to the decision that they had. The jurors said they did not believe the state had proved its case. We cleared our minds completely of anything that we felt that could keep us from getting to a unanimous verdict. And on the first vote, we all decided the state really hadn't shown us enough evidence. Their decision would make Joanne Little the first woman in the United States to be acquitted for the use of deadly force to resist sexual assault. But... And what must have been a slight blow to the triumphant feelings of Joanne and the defense team, the judge, who felt that Jerry Paul had been disrespectful during trial, immediately followed the verdict with another announcement. Her victory was somewhat marred when Judge Hamilton Hobgood, recalling earlier heated courtroom exchanges with Chief Defense Attorney Jerry Paul, sentenced him to 14 days in jail for contempt of court. According to St. Petersburg Times, Jerry Paul would respond breezily, saying, quote, If what I did contributed in any way to freeing Joanne Little, then I'm proud to serve time. It's a badge of honor. District Attorney William Griffin was less pleased, telling the St. Petersburg Times that he'd, quote, seen cases where less evidence than this resulted in a conviction. According to Jordan Green, writing for IndieWire, Joanne emerged from the courtroom to a large crowd, singing, Oh, Happy Day. Here's Joanne herself, talking with CBS about how it all felt. I didn't think that the jury was going to come back as quickly as they did. When they came back, uh, all I could do was, you know, try to black out everything and just sit really stiff. And when he said, yes, they had a verdict, you know, and uh, when he said not guilty, I just threw my head back and just, you know, tears just came down because I was so happy that, you know, I would never have to go to, go to bed you know, thinking, well, I wonder what they're going to do, you know. And we're a lot of things hanging over here. And I said, I feel good that uh, I have um, my freedom. And maybe, if this were a different show, we'd end the story here. Joanne with her freedom. A victory for her and the movements that supported her. But this is truer crime. And as I read about the jury's verdict, I wondered what would come next for Joanne. I thought about an interview she'd done prior to her acquittal with James Rustin. He'd asked her about this exactly. I don't suppose you've given any thought at all that uh, once you were freed of what you're going to do after that. Um, well, I think I'm going to work. You know, I know I'm going to you know, get a job, but I want to work with people. And the people that I want to work with are the people that are in jail and in prison. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, I've become more aware of, of the situation that people uh, in prison and in jail, they, they actually need um, 
uh, somebody that can come in and talk to them, not somebody that just can come in just out of nowhere, is never experienced being in jail. I don't mean being in jail for an hour or two hours, but I mean being in jail and actually been there and you know for a period of time, two months, three months, and they can actually relate to this person and feel you know the same thing they feel. You know they can uh, relate on the same level, and I think that that would be helpful in this area. But these dreams, as hopeful and needed as they were, they'd never come to fruition. Because according to Christina Green, writing for the University of Chicago Press, after Joanne's acquittal, she'd go right back to jail. To finish serving out the 7-10 to year sentence she'd been serving at the time of her assault. The trauma of her attack and the subsequent trial were apparently not punishment enough for the property theft she'd committed as a teenager. And when she was let out in parole in 1979, she'd pretty much disappear from the public eye for good. It was all such an important lesson about the limits of the system and the brutally short attention span of the public. In some ways, Joanne's acquittal was this huge win. But in other ways, it reinforced a system that was still fundamentally broken. It was a point that Marvin Miller, a member of Joanne's defense team, had expressed on the news before Joanne's acquittal. Generally, the American system of, of justice is pretty much... Uh a failure to a large degree. This case may turn out and we feel will turn out to be a victory for Joanne Little, but even if Joanne Little wins her case, that doesn't vindicate the American system of justice because Joanne is a poor person. She doesn't have a lot of money and the only way that she will have been able to have won this case will be that a lot of people have donated a lot of money and a lot of time. Poor people just can't amass defense like this. And this kind of case is happening across the country every day, all the time. And uh, one case that gets in the limelight where things go right doesn't mean that the whole system works. And as Joanne's lead attorney, Jerry Paul, would tell journalist Wayne King for The New York Times, quote, the whole trial process, it had nothing to do with justice. I bought Joanne Little's acquittal and it cost $325,000. This system doesn't want justice. It wants convictions. That's why, given enough money, I can buy justice. I can win any case in this country given enough money. I can create illusion, anything. I'm going to tell the truth. You must destroy the charade, the illusion of justice. At the end of Danielle McGuire's piece on Joanne, there's this scanned copy of a comic that appeared in the Baltimore Afro-American not long after Joanne's acquittal in August of 1975. The cartoon is of Joanne in a boxing ring. Both of her arms are held up in victory by her lawyers, who stand at her sides. Joanne's opponent lies under her feet, knocked out. But it's his attire that I find most interesting. He's wearing Confederate flag shorts and a shirt emblazoned with the words, Dixie racism. The comic's message is simple. Joanne's case was a knockout blow to Southern racism. But it wasn't quite accurate. Joanne's case was a testament to the power of solidarity, to the strength of numbers and collective action, but Joanne's case also represented just how much it took just to get the system to operate fairly. As historian Christina Green would write, 
Joanne's acquittal silenced critics of the criminal justice system because it made folks feel like even a poor Black woman with a record could win an acquittal in the South. And, you know, it made perfect sense. Because when you play the game by the game maker's rules and you win, well, you just might start believing the rules were fair in the first place. It was a reminder that the way we choose to tell these stories matters. And while Joanne's story is representative of so much, I think it's also important to not just reduce her to a symbol. Because while what happened to her is representative of the experiences of so many people, ultimately this story is Joanne's. So I want to leave you with her words. I am somebody, a poem by Joanne Little. I may be down today, but I am somebody. I may be considered the lowest on earth, but I am somebody. I came up in low-rent housing, sometimes lived in the slums, but I am still somebody. I read an article where a Black youth was jailed. He stole some food, but he got 15 to 20 years. He was somebody. I killed a white in self-defense, but the jury doesn't care. And when he came for me to prepare trial, he said, she deserves the chair. Every time, every hurt and pain that I feel inside, every time I pick up the morning news only to see my name on the front page, I begin to wonder, they make me feel less than somebody. But in the end, I will have freedom and peace of mind. I will do anything to help prove my innocence because of one important fact above all, I am somebody. As always, I'd like to take some time to direct you towards a few important action steps related to today's episode. First, because we believe that survivors should be supported without the fear of criminalization, we'd like to highlight Survived and Punished, a national coalition of survivors, organizers, victim advocates, legal advocates, attorneys, policy experts, scholars, and currently and formerly incarcerated people. Survived and Punished organizes to decriminalize efforts to survive domestic and sexual violence, support and free criminalized survivors, and abolish gender violence, policing, prisons, and deportations. Their website is full of so many incredible resources, ways to get involved, articles for furthering your learning, literally anything that you could possibly want. It's on their website. And I really encourage you to check it out. You can look at all of these things. And of course, you can donate to support their work at survivedandpunished.org. Next, I want to direct you towards the National Jericho Movement, an organization which describes itself as a movement with the goal of winning the freedom of political prisoners. And, you know, Joanne Little herself, she wasn't a political prisoner, but many of the movements that rallied around Joanne and her cause, they're supported by individuals who are formerly or are currently incarcerated for their activism work. Supporting these folks is a way to give back to the same movements that uplifted Joanne Little and stand up for those who are unjustly incarcerated. You can donate and learn more about their work, including information about the political prisoners they're currently supporting at thejerichomovement.com. And finally, as we did in part one of Joanne Little's story, I'd like to again extend special thanks to James Reston for all of his important work in documenting this incredible history 
and the Southern Historical Collection in Wilson Library at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill for allowing us to use material from their collections. You can learn more about the Southern Historical Collection, including ways to support their work, at library.unc.edu forward slash Wilson forward slash SHC. And as always, you can find a full list of our sources from today's episode on our website, truercrimepodcast.com. See you next season.